With more than 60 episodes in the game, KP and PR are still dropping gems. Secrets continues to bring you the hot fire that you have grown to expect. Listeners describe Secrets as the ultimate receipt for motivating the underrepresented employee to be bold in achieving their career aspirations in corporate America. And season four will definitely not disappoint as they deliver secrets on how to advocate for yourself, how to become a better ally, and how to get your market value. Your hosts, Keith Powell and Ricky Robinson, put in that work to reach the top of corporate America. And this groundbreaking podcast challenges you, as well as corporate America, to be better and do better. KP and PR will bring you more tips and tricks on how to advance in your career. So fill up those cups and welcome to season four. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Secrets. Ricky, what's going on, my friend? KP, man, I'm a little uptight right now. Is you know, I've just been reflecting on the sheer number of guests that we've had on the podcast and the number of people that we've had, like the pleasure of providing executive coaching services mm-hmm. to. And there's like one common thread or a theme that I continue to see in my in most of these scenarios. Man, it seems like, like we're just overqualified before being considered qualified oh yeah to do the damn job man like what's so disturbing about this concept is that it continues to happen over and over and over again man it's just like the it's the song that just won't quit just won't quit just keep playing (laughs) in the rotation yeah yeah this is the this is the extended extended version you know of the shit you know what i'm saying so it just gets gets rough true and recently america got to see this on full display you know, listening to those Supreme Court hearings for Katanji Brown Jackson. Oh, I mean, talk about somebody that's overqualified. She had more qualifications than four of the nine justices combined, oh, including shit. the chief justice. <laughs> I mean, come on. Right, Give me a right. break. And throughout the process, everyone on both sides of the aisle commented on how qualified she was, how exemplary she was. But there's still, at the end of the day, there was still only three Republicans that voted for her. Even though they all said how qualified she was. So what is that? What yeah. is that? I mean, it, it, it starts to get to the point where it's like, we're, we're not even talking about moving the football. Like we were right. saying, like moving oh, yeah. the goalposts yeah. or anything yeah. like that. We just make shit up at some point. That's right. <laughs> Do you know no, what I'm totally, saying? Like, totally. We're just making stuff up. Making you know? it up. And as you said, this scenario plays out time and time again in the workplace. You see highly qualified individuals being denied opportunities despite having more than enough qualifications to do the job. Yeah, look, KP, I mean, honestly, just listening to this example just makes my blood boil like mm-hmm. over and over again because it was almost, you know, when you, when you hear the line of questioning, when you hear the extra hurdles that they want Mm -hmm. the person to jump through, it just, it's sickening, you know, to be honest with you, like this constant battle to prove that you belong at the table or in the club or in the room is exhausting. It takes a toll on you like mentally, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we Mm -hmm. talk about most of those things. Most of all, it can take a toll on your bank account. You know, when you are not given the opportunities for total compensation based on our abundance, you know, of Mm -hmm. qualifications, this is the generational wealth that we speak about, right? Being damaged at all costs. All the time. And Secrets Village today, we're just going to bring you another superstar guest who I'm sure has experienced (laughs) some of the same stuff that we've been talking about. You know, this brother has done it all. From management to consulting, to corporate finance, to corporate strategy, to sales and marketing, to leading larger and larger businesses in the med tech space. So 
You say more about being qualified, right? <laughs> if there's anyone qualified to be a CEO right now in this space, I want to compare the resumes. Right. Show me the receipts because I can't believe there's another one that's ready to go. <laughs> so Ricky and I are honored, so honored to have this on the show today, Namdi and Joku on Secrets Today. So Namdi, welcome, my brother. So good to have you. Oh, man, it's such an honor to join you two here today. And, you know, as far as the CEO comment, I appreciate the vote of confidence. You know? <laughs> hey, a- any role that allows me to use my gifts to make an impact, I'm OK with. So I appreciate it. Hey, look, Nambi, man, welcome again. Well, look, we've been trying to get this brother on for a minute, you know, and we just we're just happy to be able to have this conversation where this is going to be outstanding. I know your story and your journey, and I'm excited that our Secrets Village We'll finally be able to uh, hear your story as well. So let's just get into it, Keith. Let's get into it. So in today's episode, we'll talk with Namdi about his path to the top, his sponsorship journey, and some of the challenges and triumphs he faced while climbing to the top. We'll also discuss what it's like as a Black and underrepresented leader having to walk the tightrope in corporate America while constantly having to prove yourself over and over and over again to get the roles that resemble that may resemble those glass clip opportunities at the end of the day in some of those cases. As usual, we're going to give you some receipts. Today, we'll talk about receipts on qualifications and promotional disparities in corporate America. And we'll close out with a double dose of secrets from Nandi on what companies can do to close that qualification disparity and what each of us can do to stay focused despite the overqualified challenge that some of us face. Man, this is about to be fire. This is about to be fire. So yeah. so so look, so Nabi, let's let's just dive into this, man. Like what we generally try to do when we start some of our shows here is, you know, we selfishly we know who you are, right? But we want to yeah. lift up the the hood here and give our listeners an idea of who we're speaking to. So can you please take a moment to bring our listeners up to speed on who you really are? What is your upbringing, educational background, and, you know, your corporate leadership journey? Like, let's just get into it. All right. I'm looking forward to this. So uh, I'll go way back, as you can tell from the name Namdi. It's, uh, it's not a common name. It's, it's, uh, I'm Nigerian. I was born and raised up until about 16, 17. And, you know, my parents were, were highly educated professionals. So my dad has a PhD in pathology that he got from Kansas State prior to, you know, moving back to Nigeria to start his career. And then my mom has a master's in what's called personnel management, now called HR. So they both worked at one of the premier universities in Nigeria. So in many ways, I was born and raised on a college campus. So I was immersed in education. So just you think about it growing up, where you're growing up on a college campus, you're seeing a lot of Black excellence around you. And I call it the ecosystem of excellence. So that's, that's basically what shaped me. That's the environment I grew up in. And of course, you know, Nigeria being a, a British colony, we spent a lot of time vacationing in the UK. So I got this mixed view of growing up in a, in a, in a black environment, but I also got the sort of a, a taste of what it's like to, to, to cross cultures, if you will, to a non-black culture. That was my experience growing up. So at about nine years old, I go off to boarding school in the central part of the country. And that's another foundational experience for me because if you can think about it, I, I like to think a lot of my independence, a lot of my grit, a lot of my focus comes from that, having to sort of go outside the nest, go off to school at the age of nine, and really you know, spend most of the year there. And of course, a lot of kids in my, in, in my school didn't, didn't, didn't make it, I'll, I'll be honest, because that's at a very impressionable age. 
And it takes a lot of grit to just stand your ground and know who you are. So that was a pivotal experience for me. So by the time I got done with high school in Nigeria, my dad was a dean and a director of the medical school at the University of the West Indies in Trinidad and Tobago. So I went over there for a couple of years and, uh, you know, spent some time in the islands. If anybody hasn't been there, I recommend it. <laughs> Check it out. So I spent about a year and a year and a half there. And then, uh, you know, I wanted to go to college in the U.S. So I ended up in Minnesota through, I have a lot of family in the Twin Cities here. So I, so I picked this spot because, you know, I had a cousin who was my age. So we went to college, the same college at the same time, in, in addition to my brother. Ended up in the Twin Cities, got a major uh, undergrad degree in accounting, and I got a minor in theology. That's always a good conversation, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good combination. combination. That's <laughs> But, but I, I went through college, and so back to that driven aspect, I got through college in about three years, graduated, and ended up at Deloitte Consulting. I interned before my final year in college and ended up there to start up my career. So a couple of years through Deloitte Consulting, got a chance to see a lot of industries, uh, med tech, the healthcare space from a payer perspective, uh, the PC space, spent a lot of time at Gateway Computer. And then I wanted to go to business school, but I wanted a different experience before going out to business school. So I ended up at, in a corporate finance role at a large payer called United Health Group. So I joined their corporate finance team for about two years. And then at that point in time, I felt like I had enough of a, of a base here to go off to business school. And my goal was to go into the med tech space coming out of business school. So I ended up at Cornell University, got my MBA from there, spent two great years in upstate New York, a lot of snow. <laughs> so I came out and joined the largest med tech company and have been in the med tech space ever since for the last 17 years. And then in terms of my, my corporate experience post-business school, I started out as an, as an expat in Switzerland working within our European operations focused on sales and pricing. And then after that stint, you know, moved back to the U.S. To, and took a corporate finance and business development role within uh, one of our larger businesses. After that experience, move on to our corporate office to join the corporate strategy team. So ran the strategic planning process for a number of cycles. And then another corporate role as chief of staff of what's called scientific operations. So really got immersed in the scientific part of med tech and all the things that we do in that space from clinical to regulatory to science and technology. Uh, so a lot of the scientific underpinnings of the industry. And then after that, moved back into a business unit role where I got a chance to get uh, oversee marketing, market development, therapy development, oversaw the M&A activities for that business. And then from there, integrated an acquisition of an early stage company, ran it as a, that was my first foray into a general management role. And then after that, just took on a, a, a series of other general management role of bigger and bigger businesses. And currently sitting in a global president role for one of our 20 operating units within the company. So it's been a great ride in the last 17 years. Uh, so that's been my experience and my journey in a nutshell. See, I, I told y'all he ready. Did <laughs> <laughs> I tell you he ready? I mean, that, I mean, when you just sit back and think about it, I mean, what like incredible like life experiences, right? Like forget about like yeah. all of the corporate stuff so far, just to be able to grow up and, and have visibility at a young age to so many different cultures and environments. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's half the battle right there when For you sure. get into like corporate America is trying to understand other people so that you can engage, oh, you know, no, so sure. to speak, right? I mean, we talk about that a lot, having a global perspective. You came with a global perspective, right? Absolutely. So, Absolutely. I mean, it's so, so critical. And, and you talked about that 
ecosystem of excellence that you grew up in. I mean, all all that foundational stuff that prepared you for where you are today. And, you know, we all have those forks in the road where we have to make a decision or or mm-hmm. decide, you know, how we're going to be our best, best selves and trying to decide what path am I going to take to like boost my success to make sure I turbocharge where I'm mm-hmm. going. So could you talk about what maybe that fork in the road for you and how you were intentional about deciding where you wanted to go and where you wanted to head? That's a great question. And I'll answer it in, in, in the, the two influences I would say that sort of led me to that fork in the road. And the first influence, I come from a big family and my family is a, is a very educated family. And we used to have this running joke with it when I was growing up within my family that when you were graduating, for example, from high school, you had nephews and, and nieces, you had cousins that had like two, three PhDs. So <laughs> the joke was, what are you celebrating? You're just, you're just getting done with high school. <laughs> so you gotta, you're just starting out. So that was a pivotal experience for me because I had a lot of cousins ahead of me that were just doing great things and high achievers. But that fork in the road for me started in, in high school and, and where I went to boarding school at about your third year point, you had to take this test and you basically had to pick a path at that point. And the two paths were either going down the business or arts or going down the science route. And you can imagine as a, I don't know, 12 year old trying to decide your future path at that point, but it sort of forced you to think about what you really wanted to do. So for me, that fork in the road happened there because I picked the business path. And a lot of why I picked it was because I had a lot of leadership roles in, in school because a lot of the functioning of the school was, was student-driven. So from a leadership standpoint, I started exhibiting that leadership uh, experience very early. But the other thing too was the country was starting to emerge as a, I guess, as a business power, so to speak. So oil and gas, banking. So I had all these examples of business executives to watch in an industry that was starting to grow within the country. So that's why I picked the business path. So it wasn't a scientific process. It was more sort of what I saw around me and what I thought I could do from an impact standpoint. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's great. The thing that, that, that struck me there too was like, you know, being in Nigeria and actually seeing people like you in these positions of power and driving things, you know, we talk a lot about it's hard for you to be what you can't see. Mm-hmm. And, and sure, being able to see that as a young kid, you had the confidence, you know, right out the gate, even when you came over to America and, you know, all the stuff that you have to deal with being in the U.S., but you already had in your mind. I know my people can do this. I right? know it's possible. I know it's possible. Mm-hmm. And that had to have a big, I'm sure it had a big influence on your confidence level. Absolutely. And, and, I, and I think about it this way. I always say that, and I talk about this to different groups. I always say you have to, you have to, you have to know who you are because there's just a lot of influences that come at you through society, through people. And and I can shake your confidence and, and shake, you know, the, the sort of foundation you have. But if you're somebody that has a, a good grounding on who you are, what you're about, who your people are, and, and what kind of journey they've been on, I think that gives you a resilience to, to weather just about anything. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's crazy because, you know, you think about you being able to see it, you know, as a young child, right? And, and you've been living it. And then you come to the U.S. and shit's twisted. Like, you know what I mean? You're like, you're like, you're you're begging for leadership positions, you know, all of this type of stuff. And it's like, you're trying to prove yourself. And and in most cases, 
the story that you just told, like the pedigree that you come from, most leaders don't even care to try to figure that out. <laughs> and, you know, like they just assume that, you know, you're, you're learning as you go and, and you're just trying to figure it out when all along you have like an intentional plan, <laughs> you know, here, right. You know, yeah. so, so I, so I look at this like this at this point, Nabi. I mean, look, I just continue to be impressed every time we, we, we speak, you know, and we talk about this purple unicorn factor, right. Because it's so rare for people to see it, but we think about like our, our, our village, we could just make phone calls and call people who've done this stuff, right? Like, and, and, and just hearing your story, I know it resonates, but one of the things like in it, and it's extremely humble, you know, as we're talking about, you know, you willing to share this story, you know, with the secrets village here, the intentionality with these moves, like your overall plan, you know, it's a familiar tale, you know, for many of us, but some, you know, this is the first time they are hearing like, wait, wait a minute, I can probably do this too. The constant uphill battle and, you know, the ebbs and flows here kind of takes a toll, especially being like BIPOC when you have like these aspirational goals. Can you talk just for a little bit about maybe some of the difficult moments that you faced, you know, and how you overcame those was like, was there a time or a various moment when you felt like just stepping away and throwing in the towel? Like we always say this, not like everybody wants to quit, but like it does become a lot the shoulder because these glass cliff opportunities, you know, are really fragile, <laughs> you know, to say the least, right? There's a small margin for error, you know, there. So maybe if you can just take a little bit of time and talk to us a little bit about some of those moments you had. You know, absolutely. And, and let me start by maybe talking about just a quick concept and, I, and I'll hit the question you're asking here. So around, around navigating, when I think about my path, the way I've always sort of gone about navigating my path has always been just with an idea about the impact I want to have as an, as an executive. Right. And I know that there are different paths to get there, but I've always sort of focused on trying to figure out the next few steps as opposed to trying to figure out the 50 steps to get there. Right. So for example, when I was in, uh, when I was in, in consulting, I knew I wanted to get an MBA. I knew I wanted, I wanted to go into med tech. At least I had the first two steps clear out. Now, what would happen after that, I'll figure it out as I go, but at least I have a North Star about where I'm trying to go. But back to that challenge, uh, being a, a, a Black executive, and, and, and as you put it, throwing in the towel, look, all of us have those experiences, and I'll talk about a couple for me. Either you feel like you're stagnating, I certainly felt that at certain points in my career, or, or you're in a tough job where you know that the, the odds of success are, are, are very slim. But, you know, you're taking it on and trying to build your career and make an impact. There are two maybe I'll point out that were periods for me where I had to dig deep. I'll put it that way. <laughs> and the first for me was um, when I was uh, leading an early stage. So my first sort of general management experience where I was leading an early stage acquisition that we did. I'd been running that business for the, for by, I ran it for about three and a half years. But when we started the, the journey on that business, the strategy we had set just didn't work out as we had expected because the product started to exhibit some issues in the field. And it became one of those situations where we grabbed a whole bunch of market share early and then the product started showing some issues and then everything just sort of unraveled after that point. And then as the architect of this whole thing, I mean, you're seeing your strategy just splattering, <laughs> not working out. And a lot of things go through your mind. Obviously, you want it to be a success. You've recruited a great set of people to come work with you, but all of a sudden things aren't working out as you expected. And then 
as you're trying to deal with that, one of the things that you always think about is, am I going to get an opportunity after this? <laughs> you know, this might be it. But somebody told me something in the, during the course of that time that, you know what, we know things aren't going well. Obviously, you try to figure out how to turn things around, but everybody is going to be looking at you about in terms of how you react in this moment, because we know that the success we were shooting for, we weren't seeing it. But how you react to that is going to be the determinant if you get a next opportunity going forward. And to me, that was pivotal for me because I focused on that. And, and as luck would have it, I've had opportunities since then. And we did actually turn it around ultimately. The second point for me was I was running another business that was very challenging and also trying to navigate the, the issues around the last couple of years. And same thing, right? You dig deep, you figure out what needs to be done here. But I've always felt like I relied on a couple of things to get there. Uh, my village, I know a few of your guests have talked about the village. Mm -hmm. I relied on my village to, to, to make it through. My family, I always rely on my family as well. My wife always says, hey, we can move into a one-bedroom apartment. Things don't work out. So <laughs> don't, worry about don't worry about it. You know, mentors, uh, I rely on those quite a bit. But maybe the last thing I'll point out is also mindset. And I do this constantly when I get into those situations where I'm feeling like I want to throw in the towel. I always tell myself, all right, I'm going to take the weekend. I'm going to wallow in this pity state. And then after the weekend, I'm going to get back in the game. And there's something about putting a timeline into it. And obviously, the last thing is also legacy. I think about all the folks that have had a hand in getting me to where I am and, and, and the potential I have going forward. And, and that's where the towel period, you know, fades in the background after a while. So, so just a couple of things in terms of how I make it through those times. No, that's a, that's great wisdom and great and great advice for sure. And it, and it leads us to kind of kind of the next question because you know Ricky and I we we reject kind of that pull yourself up by the bootstrap mentality. It takes a village, yeah, right. And nobody, there's none of us who have made this on our own. And you're really deceiving yourself if you think that you did. So I'm sure you had sponsors along the way. <laughs> We've all had sponsors. That's kind of the secret juice to, to, to breaking through the top. Can you talk about a sponsor or two that you've had or what your sponsorship journeys look like uh, in your career? Man, we could have a whole show on that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, to me, I have a lot of humility around this topic because I know that there's a lot of people with talent and capability that don't get the opportunities that they deserve. And the difference between those that get it and those that don't typically comes down to sponsorship. So I'm acutely aware of that. It, for me, it's been it's been the story of my success. I mean, I can think of probably I can even rattle off the number of people who've had a hand in shaping my my career and my sponsorship journey. You know, Cindy Kent, Jeff Martha, Jan Erickson. There's a lot, just a couple of names. And let me talk about maybe some specific points in time, very just very quickly. You know, when I was in consulting, I was in a particular service line and I was getting my annual review from one of the partners that ran that service line. And through that conversation, I basically stopped him halfway and said, look, I don't have any passion around this particular service line. I want to go do, you know, something else in a, in a different service line. And this was somebody who was telling me about all the good things I was doing, all the future I had in the firm. But through that conversation, he sort of saw that, look, this, this place wasn't resonating for me. And just picked up the phone and called the other partner. And that person became a huge sponsor for me in terms of getting me to where I felt I could make a better impact uh, within the firm. In my corporate environment journey here, post-business post school, I remember making the jump from senior manager to director. Again, that was another sponsorship effect of getting me there. And 
it wasn't also about just putting me in the role. It was also showing me what it takes to not only succeed in that director role, but what it would take to succeed in a VP role. So one of the things that my sponsor at that time used to do was, was she would basically take the job expectations for two levels above where I was at. And she would basically be measuring me against that. But the point she was trying to make was, this is what it takes long-term to get to where you're trying to get to. And of course, you know, my first VP role was a big sponsorship effect as well in terms of getting me to that level. And without that sponsorship, there's no way I would have made that jump. So it's been a pivotal aspect of just getting me to where I'm at today. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it's crazy. I, I, I think about being an athlete in high school and in college, and you think about some of the people who just never get a chance, right? Like they're, they're good enough to be on the team, good enough to get a scholarship, probably even good enough to go pro, but either it's the environment that you're in or it's the lack of support, you know, it, like a, a slew of things can keep you from getting to, to where you need to be. But I think about like your intentionality, you know, with, with the plan that you had for yourself, the people who invested within you, and then the accountability that you had to make sure that you did what you were supposed to do. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I think about this story. We always tell like when my dad, you know, told me when I got ready to go to school, you know, everybody's getting all of these gifts and everything. And my dad sat me down and his gift was the conversation. He said, look, uh, I don't have a lot to give you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, he was like, this, this was the man that told me when you get ready to go for an interview, hey, tell him that you come in early, you stay late, and you catch uh-huh. on fast. <laughs> but, but literally, he said, there's a lot of people looking at you, you know, right yeah. now to like, and they're looking, they're looking at you and they, they want to see you do well. He says, all I got for you is that last name. Don't fuck that up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, whoa. But, you know, you think about it, there's a responsibility, you know, there. Right. And when you finally make it, it makes you feel like you've accomplished something. So thinking about that, can you maybe talk to our listeners about what it was like when you got that first, you know, VP or leadership role, when you were able to kind of ascend to that level? Did you feel like you had arrived? What were like some of the perks that you received by way of maybe board seats community opportunities, or even special acknowledgement from friends and family? Because we know friends and family, them them the ones that you really got to, <laughs> you know, impress, right? Like you might yep. get that promotion, but you still got to take out that trash. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you still have to. Yep, I, I get it. I get it. And, and just building off the comment you just made about your dad, a similar story. My dad always used to say growing out that, look, I'm not going to leave you a bunch of money. The only thing I'm going to leave you is your education. And that's it. <laughs> yeah. Hey. Yeah. The rest is up to you. Have fun. But but back to that VP role. Look, I, I it felt good to to get there because, as you know, it's a pivotal step, right? In any corporate career, it's one of those things where when I when I got promoted to VP, I certainly was was proud of the accomplishment. But the role I was going into was a critical initiative, and I, I you know, I celebrated, and then it was back to work, right? But a lot of the perks that you're talking about, it opens up a whole new world. And it did for me in terms of the kinds of opportunities that you get presented with now that you're at that level. Different corporate opportunities in other places all of a sudden start to emerge. People start, you know, knowing who you are. And just, the floodgates just open up when you get to that level. And I certainly got a lot of outreach there and, and started to sort of sit in on a couple of boards from a nonprofit boards as well. So all those perks came. 
but from a family standpoint, you know, one of the things I, I realize I don't do as well is explain to my family what I do. So <laughs> a lot of, and a lot of times it's just that I feel like I talk about it all day. And, you know, when I get home, I, I feel like, okay, nobody here is interested in hearing about that. So, but to, to your comment, my wife does this thing every time I get promoted into a new role. She asks me two questions. She usually comes with two questions. And the first is, are you happy? That's the first thing she says. And I have to answer that question. You know, are you happy? And then the second thing she says is, I can't believe they're paying you that much. You're not working. <laughs> <laughs> so, so back to that taking out the trash moment, I, I, there's no way of, of keeping that feeling of that you've arrived in my household. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, I get it. I get it. It's like, I think about these family holidays and it's like, I remember it seemed like every holiday nominee, I was, it was my time to do the dishes. Right. <laughs> so I'm, like, I'm asking my brother, I'm like, Hey dude, ain't it your time to do the dishes? He says, remember we traded, remember we traded a while ago. I said, but I got, I got, I got practice tomorrow. He's like, well, maybe you, maybe we can eat off paper plates that day or something like that. But he was like, yeah, you got to clean that kitchen, you, you know? Nobody yeah, cares. Yeah. In the family, yeah, they don't know, care. Ricky, the thing is, uh, those big time titles don't work. No, no so not, at all. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> Except when you're trying to go on a trip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or you're going out to eat. Yeah, then yeah, they yeah, work. yeah. Hey, hey, you're the vice president. Uh-huh. You can pay for this. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, oh, that's funny. And Namdi, we know that you're you're active in the community. You do a lot of a lot of great things out there. And obviously living living in uh, Minnesota and Minneapolis the last couple of years, that's just been a whole different kind of situation. And I'm just curious, as a Black leader, kind of leading through kind of the last couple of years, what that has been like, because there's just been so much going on in the world. And can you just talk about what some of the challenges have been, what it's been like being a Black leader, kind of leading an organization through this time of time of turmoil and stress and trauma? Yeah. Oh, man, we could. There's a there's a lot here. I'll come at it a couple of angles here. Look, the. The events of the last couple of years, particularly living in the Twin Cities, has been challenging on a number of fronts. Um, this is a place that I call home. And, you know, there's just a lot of things about this community that I love. But at the same time, there's a part of the community that I think just became very apparent to a lot of us. Now, might not be new for, for a lot of us, but, you know, other people who live in this community got a chance to see a lot of what was going on here. And as an executive, it was particularly a very challenging period, particularly because we have to show up and do our jobs, right? We have a commitment to the roles that we have, but at the same time, we're also a part of this community. And and as a Black executive, you sort of straddle a lot of worlds. And as Ricky knows, you know, one of the things that I have the pleasure of doing is, uh, is chairing one of our uh, networks, so the African Descent Network. And a lot of what we basically tried to do was to figure out how to just be there for our community, particularly within the company, while dealing with this ourselves, right? And this is not one of those things where you can say, well, let me just go through my journey first and then I'll get back to you all. It doesn't work that way. We had to sort of figure out a way of doing everything all at once. So just creating spaces for our community, particularly within the company, just to, just to exist and heal was sort of the first priority. And, and then the second thing that I you know, was focused doing in my role as the, as the chair of the network as well, was just trying to figure out ways of, I call it building bridges and opening hearts and minds. And a lot of what I'm getting at here is how do we get to a point where we educate folks on the Black experience? 
what it's like to be a black professional, all the things that we have to go through just to sort of show up at the start line, right? Mostly we just roll out of bed and show up at the start line. You have to go through a gauntlet just to get to that point. And I think with understanding that people, we can actually figure out how to take the next step collectively together. So for me, that's a lot of what I focused on as I was going through that journey and, and, and that journey myself. I certainly feel the weight of not only being an underrepresented group, but honestly, the weight that I feel probably more acutely is more of the responsibility of, of succeeding because back to what you said when we started this conversation, if our community can't see what a, an example of success looks like, then it's kind of tough to figure out how to get there if you just can't see it. To me, it's more about the responsibility of the, that's that's the way that I feel the most, I, I would put it that way. But I did some things to just personally get through this whole thing. And, and we're still going through it. It's not over yet. But back to that mindset again, I always sort of reflect on, you know, everything starts between the ears. If you can figure out a way of getting help wherever you feel like it, it could be helpful for you, of getting to the other side very quickly, I try to focus on that. And then, you know, back to my roots again, you know, foundation, you try to tap into that foundation as best you can. And then the last thing I would say in terms of the mentorship aspect, I find a lot of times when I engage and uplift people within my community, I feel better myself. And that's what works for me. So, so just a couple of insights into what I was going through personally and and how I try to get to the other side to a better place. Yeah, look, yeah. Nambi, I mean, this, this is this is again been just a a great discussion, you know, up until this point, right? And I know that, you know, sometimes when people hear us speak, they think we're getting dramatic or putting extra on it, you know, and 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 we're saying this brother is 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 a rarity. Mm-hmm. Okay, like this, this is mm-hmm. this is not. It's normal to us because of our network, right? But it's not normal to everyone because they can't necessarily see, That's you right. know, what what they want That's to be, right. you know. And and so so this is the part where we kind of transition. We start talking about the receipts, right? Because people think we're making this stuff up, but we really ain't. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So Keith, you know, let's talk about what the receipts that we're gonna uh, summarize yeah, today. Yeah, today today we'll we'll show you why we continue to spotlight incredible talent like Nambi, these purple unicorns mm-hmm. right, that are out here. Because again, we've seen the stats. There's only 1.4% of us who are in the executive ranks. Yeah. <laughs> so we are purple unicorns at the end of the day. And while we have to work twice as hard to be twice as good, and we'll show receipts on uh, disparities and opportunities that continue to plague underrepresented employees. So look, so receipt number one, okay, I'm going to hit you with receipt number one. For decades, studies have found that ethnic minorities receive fewer responses to job applications, even when they have comparable qualifications to whites. Ethnic minorities have to complete 50% more applications on average to get invited for a job interview when compared with candidates in the majority. And applicants with black sounding names receive 50% fewer callbacks than that of their white counterparts. Yeah. I mean, look, we're talking about the shit behind the truth. That's right. You know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like stuff is there's a reason, you know, why we talked about why you dissing my name, right. you know, in mm-hmm. other, other, you know, uh, other episodes, right? There's a reason why we're talking about having to do twice the work 
That's just right. to get noticed, noticed. you know, so get to speak. Exactly. So, That's so right. again, receipt speaks for itself. Receipt speaks for itself. And the, and the build on that receipt number two, a national bureau of economic research showed that yes, <laughs> they answered the question. The answer was yes. Black workers have to be twice as good and work twice as hard. Their data demonstrated that black workers receive extra scrutiny from bosses, which can lead to worse performance reviews, lower wages, and even job loss. And check this out. The research also showed that in order to keep a job, Black workers also must meet a higher bar. <laughs> Only in instances where Black workers are monitored and displayed a significantly higher skill level than their white counterparts would they stand a significant chance of keeping their jobs for a while, just keeping them. Right. The research is found. But even in instances where the productivity of black workers far exceeded their white counterparts, there is still evidence that discrimination persisted, which could lead to lower wages and slower promotions. And, and when we tack on the roles that we are getting, for the most part, are glass clipped opportunities. Glass <laughs> you know what I'm right. saying? Hanging on the edge. Yeah, hanging on the edge. Now go out there and make and turn it around. <laughs> go out there and turn it around with, with your impeccable credentials. That's OK. Right. Receipt number three, we talked about this in past uh, seasons, right? Mm -hmm. The black tax. This is real, mm -hmm. okay? The black tax. And I want to click down one level and focus on black women for this receipt because we talk about mm -hmm. how disrespected they are, mm -hmm. okay? And according to the State of Black Women in Corporate America, a report by Lean In, black women are underrepresented in the workplace for many reasons. One of the biggest factors is a broken rung in the system. At the first critical step, up to the manager role. For every 100 men promoted to manager, only 58 Black women are promoted. Despite the fact that Black women ask for promotions at the same rate as men, and for every 100 men hired into uh, manager roles, only 64 Black women are even hired. That means there are fewer Black women to promote at every subsequent uh, level, and the representation gap gets even wider. And when she does get the opportunity, when it finally does happen, people often attribute her accomplishments to factors outside of her control, such as affirmative action or the Q word quotas, you know, as we uh, talked about in the past, you know, help from others or just a random chance. Yeah, just kind of happened. Yeah, wasn't qualified. You know what I'm saying? Like, again, we're talking about, we take it back to what we talked about earlier about the honorable, you know, yep. Katanji, yep. you know. Yep. Was that luck? Was that luck? <laughs> I well, look at the resume. Yeah, was that my resume? Oh, man. <laughs> Give me a break. And our last receipt, now I'm going to appreciate this because he's accounting <laughs> finance. Well, so man, like, oh, you, <laughs> might, you might make me have PTSD. <laughs> look at that. You, I don't know. I don't know. It might start twitching. <laughs> well, I get uh, those twitches, too. Yeah. <laughs> I understand. Oh, over here, Smokey in the chicken coop. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so our last receipt. If the black wage, education, housing, and investment gaps had been closed 20 years ago, it would have added an estimated $16 trillion to the economy, according to Citibank. With the black pay gap alone accounting for $2.7 trillion of that $16 trillion. Wow. And today, black workers are overrepresented in low-wage entry-level jobs and underrepresented in senior leader and executive roles. We know this. In the U.S. private sector, Black workers make up 12% of entry-level workforce and just 7% of the managerial workforce, according to McKinsey. The higher you go, 
the fewer black professionals you see. We talked about this earlier. If you can't see it, it's hard to right. hard to know that you can even get there. At the senior manager and VP level, black workers make up just five percent of the workforce, and at the SVP level, just four percent. At the very top, only around 1% of Fortune 500 CEO spots are held by Black leaders. And if the current trajectory continues, McKinsey and Company estimates that it would take 95 years before Black employees reach parity at all levels in the private sector. I mean, I, 95 years, 95 man. Years. That's like a great, great grandkid. Yeah, exactly. It. So, 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 so we're talking about we're doing secret saying we might not even see it in our oh, lifetime. We won't see it. You know what I'm saying? Like that's the reality. <laughs> that's that's, that, that's the reality. That's like as hard as we 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 try to change the paradigm. Mm-hmm. You know. So look again, those receipts are ridiculous. Okay, sure. but they are true. Mm-hmm. Okay, but what we want to do this time, you know, in the show is let's just navigate into the secrets, secret, right? Yeah. Because yeah. again. We want to point out, you know, some of the issues with the system, but we want to be able to give people tools That's right. to be able to hopefully change the paradigm. For here sure. a bit. For so, sure. you know, since we're we're blessed, you know, today with having our brother Namdi on Secrets today, we have a special dose of secrets for you. We will ask Namdi to provide some secrets for corporate America with respect to requiring BIPOC and other underrepresented groups to be overqualified to do roles that they're more than qualified to do. Then we'll ask him to share a few additional secrets to help us all within the village continue to stay the course with our own career aspirations when we know we have the credentials and the qualifications to do a much larger role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now let's just start with this concept of overqualified to be qualified. What advice would you give to corporate America on kind of changing this paradigm and, and, and altering this dynamic so that we can be better? Hey, Fakita, thanks for that question. You know, First of all, your secrets, uh, your receipts nailed it. I think that this concept, if not addressed, I don't know if we get to our potential as an economy or any business, right? But over time, it feels to me like there are two things that corporations can do. And I share this because realizing that corporations are a collection of people, you know, people are imperfect, but there are two things that I think every company can do. And the first is if you make the hiring and development of BIPOC talent, a critical factor in promotion and advancement. I think that you get people's attention. And I know there's a lot of conversation about, okay, let's tie it to compensation and pay. Well, that's all well and good. But I feel like it, to me, that's kind of like, that's a short-term aspect. We're talking about what is the long arc of your career. And if that long arc of your career is dependent on how well you do this, then I think you start to change the paradigm because what it, what it basically the company will be telling you by doing that is, is saying, look, if you can't show that you can groom and develop diverse talent, then we have no business giving you our most precious resources. That's really the message, right? And your promotion on your next five, 10 promotions are going to be dependent on how well you do that. So that's one thing I think all companies can do in terms of implementing systems to be able to do that. And then, of course, the, the second thing is, again, it's one of those things that is very apparent, but it's hard to do. But how do you sort of constantly assess and de-bias your assessment and promotion processes and make sure you have checks and balances in the system? I've come to the conclusion that for big promotional decisions, it shouldn't be left to just the feelings of one person. There has to be some level of nothing's ever going to be 100 percent objective. But the more objective you can make it and the more voices are in that 
that come to, that are brought to bear on that decision, then I think you start getting a more fairer aspect of, of making those decisions. If it's one of those things where you know I can just go off and you know promote somebody based on you know how I feel about things, then then you're going to have millions of those decisions getting made every day, and we're going to be where we're exactly where we are. So if companies can do those two things, I think that that changes the game. Mm-hmm. Damn, damn, Nandi. <laughs> I mean, like honestly, like I just appreciate the simplicity mm-hmm. in your remedy, right? And. and and it, this this is one of those those subjects that always just really just gets me like chapped, right? Because it really isn't as hard as people make it out to be. Mm-hmm. Like if you're really dedicated to being a change agent and trying to create equity and trying to do, like, you can do it. Like it, like we know it can happen. There are companies out there who do it well, but they are the minority, right? Like they are the minority. And this is when you start to get into the performative acts. Mm -hmm. We we talk about doing some of the right stuff, but when you go back and you look at the receipts, they would change if we were really about that work, Mm -hmm. about that business, (laughs) you know? So, So look, it's up to us at the end of the day to hold corporate America accountable for changing this unwritten requirement that you spoke about. What specific secrets would you like to provide to the Secrets Village to continue to stay the course with our own career aspirations when we know we have the credentials to do, you know, larger roles, right? We're qualified to be able to do it, you know, and I know that you had quite a bit of intentionality with your career, but what would you like to leave our listeners with, you know, today uh, in regards to this? I'll build on the theme of simplicity here because, you know, when you got complex solutions, it's hard to, to, to wrap your mind around it. So three things, and I always say this, from a career standpoint, I always recommend that everybody spend some time doing some deep introspection on who you are, what you want, and what you're willing to do to get it. If you're not clear on that, it's hard to do anything else. So spend some time thinking about that. And then the next step after that is figure out what you're willing to do to get it. Uh, what are you willing to give up? What, what, what do you feel willing to sacrifice? Right? Because everything that's worth doing is going to come at some cost. And if you're not clear about what you're willing to trade off and what you're willing to give up to get what you want, then you're going to be making decisions randomly and you're not going to get to the point uh, where you're trying to get to. So if you can do some introspection in terms of who you are, what do you want, and then get to what are you willing to give up to, to get there, then it becomes clear to you how to make those, those career navigation decisions. And then once you're clear on those two steps, don't let anybody take you off course, go after it relentlessly, because if you stick with it and you keep going after it, you get there eventually. Just don't let anybody throw you off course. And, and part of not letting folks throw you off course is because you're grounded in those first two steps. So that's what I want to leave your audience with. Very simple steps, but it's, it's critical. No, no, it's, it is really, really great advice. And Ricky and I, you know, if, if you do coaching with us, we spend a lot of time on an introspective piece, right? Because we know that you got to be in tune with who you are. You got to be in tune with your story, what, you know, what you're actually bringing to the table Yeah. at the end of the day and be really, really comfortable in that because it's so critical. And you're, and you're right about the, what are you willing to give up? Cost because of leadership is, is th- that's the cost of leadership. And we tell people that all the time too, you're going to have to give something up. You're going to have to make some trade-offs, some choices, 
yep. you know, with your lifestyle, with your time, with your family, you know, just all those things. You're gonna you're gonna have to do it. That's part of the game if you really want to get to the top. So I really appreciate the advice that um, that you gave there and the simplicity of it because it was mm-hmm. right on point, right on point. And again, super super amazing advice. Your story's been awesome. We've appreciated you being on the show today. It's been such a pleasure to have you here. And I think people are really going to gain a lot from what you've been able to share today. So really, really, really appreciate you being here with us today, Nandi. Man, hey, I'm honored that I got the invitation to the Secrets episode here. And also just a chance to share my story. I know I learn a lot from the story of others and, and the journey other people are taking. So hopefully, you know, we've talked about something here today that sparks someone else's journey to impact and greatness. So I just appreciate you guys inviting me. I'm a longtime listener and I'm going to continue listening. Awesome. Thank you. We appreciate that. And for all of our village out there, you can find more resources on the secrets we talked about today and receipts um, by going to our website, secrets.com and looking in the show notes for this episode. And look, Navi, I want to thank you as well, my brother. I mean, I know I've been texting you back and forth, and uh, and I know I know it's been some uh, some 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 uh, some clowning out there. Like, man, you get these guests on one, I get to get on. Like, he, he was hitting us, he was hitting us up like uh, like Effie from uh, from Dream Girls. I get to sing my solo, Curtis. <laughs> I get to sing my solo, Curtis. <laughs> So, yeah. uh, so, so look, yeah. we really appreciate you being, as you uh, mentioned earlier, man, just a loyal supporter, you know, of secrets from day one. Right. I mean, I remember getting messages, text messages from you. And you're like, man, Ricky, you guys might be on to something like he was like, keep, keep this stuff going. I'm like, you think he's like, no, seriously, like, don't sell you guys short. But look, and more importantly, though, I really want to uh, be able to just pay some homage to our secrets community of practice, right? Like the village that we speak about. I also want to be able to just to say, we are so humbled to all of our listeners and our fans out there, because again, you all just continue to show up for us. You continue to give us things to talk about. And, you know, without that, we wouldn't be able to do what we do. So we want to be able to say, please, if you, if you like what we're doing, continue telling other people about it. Also, go out there and write a review on Apple or buy some of that merchandise. In fact, take a picture of you in, in some of your gear and we'll post it, you know, uh, for you as well. Yes. And, you know, PR and I, we like to have a lot of fun on this on this podcast. And, and like Namdi mentioned, we're trying to create that ecosystem of excellence. Mm-hmm. I like that. We're going to steal that. <laughs> We're going to steal that. With pride. Like with pride. With pride. Yeah, with pride. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what the village is all about. But it's also about helping you get your paper at the end of the day, because we, we want you to get paid. We want you to be able to build that generational wealth that we talk so much about. And we've been able to get people over $3 million in total comp increases since we started Secrets. We're trying to get to 50. If we can get to 50, we'll shut this thing down. <laughs> At least we've done something. We've done something. So, uh, so check us out for coaching services or other ways that we can help your organization. And, and, and again, we want to thank our brother Nandi, you know, again, for sharing the story with us and, and how it drove him to succeed, you know, in corporate America. And I know at the end of the day, Nandi, you still got a long way to go, you know, for yourself. But as we're looking up, you know, and out, uh, this is very monumental, you know, for a lot of our village. And, and again, this is we're proud, you know, about this. But 
For now, I'm going to try to get Nami to share some of those stories about him living abroad. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> you know, for us and, and, and uh, being able to do that at a young age. So until the next time, everyone, thanks so much for listening to Secrets. And remember, when we share, you transform. Take care, everybody. Peace. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed yet another gem from KP and PR. In fact, one listener said that Secrets continues to share the inside story on how to truly accomplish your corporate ambitions. And we hope you agree. If you are motivated and excited after listening to Keith and Ricky, please subscribe to our podcast, share with friends, donate via Patreon, and sign up for our executive coaching services. Check us out at www.c-crets.com to get more information about our secret services. Remember, when they share, you transform. Until next time, cheers.